This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The UN General Assembly, the highest UN body that wields considerable influence over its member states, adopted a historic resolution, the recognition that it's a universal human right to live in a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. And this happened just on the 28th of July. So the resolution has been five decades in the making and is described as an important tool for accountability and climate justice. So I'm going to find out more about this from Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, and Kyujia Yao, the Secretary of the Chera Anti-Haze Action Group, and also the Co-Chair of the Malaysian Civil Society Organisation's Sustainable Development Goals Alliance, or the CSO SDG Alliance. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you today? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Juliet. It's lovely to have you both on the show. So thank you so much, you know, for doing this. Um, this was such a historic, uh, you know, declaration and a re- resolution. And, you know, I haven't been seeing much uh, discussed about it locally. So I'm so glad that the both of you have joined me to sort of explain what this is all about. Um, so maybe I can start with you, Jayao. Um, can we start off with a quick 101 on what this resolution is all about? You know, I mentioned five decades in the make- making, you know, what's the history behind it? What was the journey like getting to where we are today? Mm, yes, uh, indeed. So for the for the longest time, so many uh, uh, environmental campaigners, activists, civil society groups, NGOs, and businesses as well uh, from all over the world have been campaigning for the recognition of this uh, really the most fundamental of all rights. And uh, so this is a big deal, really, for uh, all the member states of the UN uh, to to have uh, uh, considered this motion and for. Um, 161 countries, including Malaysia, to vote in favour. No countries uh, uh, against it, uh, with eight, only eight abstaining. So this is a, a long time coming, but it's a very powerful recognition of the right of every person uh, on this planet to have access to clean, healthy and sustainable environments. Yeah. yeah. And um, maybe you can briefly explain what the resolution calls for, you know, and, and you know, what does it actually signal in, in, in terms of its uh, adoption? Right. So uh, what it does is it now recognizes this right as a human right. Right. So uh, it finally uh, uh, environmental concerns uh, and specifically uh, a person's right to a clean and healthy and sustainable environment is now elevated. Uh, to a right, a human right, among all the other human rights uh, that we have been enjoying uh, before. So that's the first uh, very important uh, uh, change here with this recognition. So it's an elevation of this right as a human right. And we all know uh, human rights are um, a big deal and they are increasingly more so. Now, besides that, it also uh, includes a call upon uh, countries, uh, member states, international organizations and business enterprises uh, to adopt policies and to uh, essentially have good practices and scale up their efforts to ensure uh, there is clean, healthy and sustainable environment for all. Okay. And would you say this sort of is a signal of a new era of uh, rights-based environmental policy? Yes, it certainly does. So we now can move on from, we can move away from the uh, previous notion where Environmental protection is something discretionary for decision makers. Uh, it now becomes a because it is recognized. It is a hu- uh, human right. And therefore, uh, it uh, imposes a duty on decision makers, uh, a duty that they must discharge. Uh, because every person um, 
has a, a human right now to a clean environment. And what it does is it allows, it gives rights to every person. So people who may be different, right? Uh, people who may be affected differently. Um, uh, I'm thinking of uh, indigenous peoples, um, people whose lives rely uh, strongly on uh, nature, on the, say the uh, health of the ocean, uh, the health of the forest, the cleanliness of the river, uh, for their well-being and for their dignity and for their livelihoods. So uh, this imposes a legal duty on decision makers. Okay. Uh, Prof, is there something you wanted to, uh, to add to that? Now, I fully agree with what uh, you all said. Uh, the only word of caution I would give is this, that as in life, so in law, there will have to be a need for a continuing reconciliation of interests in the sense that uh, many governments will continue to argue that poverty alleviation, uh, development of roads and schools and houses uh, uh, and other infrastructure is necessary for them to cut down the forests mm. and to uh, uh, destroy the hills. So I, I, I'm afraid uh, there will remain uh, this uh, conflict of many, many goals. And so some reconciliation will always be needed. But what's very important now is this, that the idea of a clean, healthy environment is now going to be part of not only international, but national discussion. So in some respects now, we have a new pole star, mm. which will now guide us either in parliament or outside. And the other day when uh, Jia uh, and I were at parliament, I think the MPs were prepared um, to receive assistance from NGOs. Uh, one of them said very clearly, supply us the material, we'll raise it in parliament. So I think that's a, a very important development that now there is a new star on the horizon. And that star on the horizon of human rights is that we all have a right, clean and healthy environment. Thank you. And, um, you know, Jayao, if I can just ask you, you know, uh, we, we mentioned at the start that the decision is being called historic, right? And uh, maybe you can help explain because I was reading that it was not included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is back in 1948. So, you know, will this fill a sort of long-standing gap in the international human rights framework as well? So I, I think, yes, um, it catches up in in terms of filling this, this huge, obvious gap. In fact, I th think a lot of uh, lay persons, or especially young people as well, um, would be actually very surprised that it is only today, uh, in, in, in 2022, yeah. that uh, the world uh, has, is recognizing such something so uh, basic, so mundane as a human right. And I think, yeah, I think many would be, would be shocked to actually learn that until, until now, uh, it was not. And so I, I really uh, can't put it any better uh, from what Prof. Shah has said. Um, this sets the North Star and it sets a prioritization, really, um, where before, uh, and especially for a country, a post-colonial country like Malaysia, where before we have devised laws and policies that singularly prioritize uh, economic growth, national security, uh, 
uh, building up our infrastructure um, uh, nod towards uh, the environment, um, uh, largely stemming from our ignorance of um, how any human activity relies on uh, a safe uh, and stable and healthy environment. And so this realization has finally caught up and, and recognizes a human right. So as Prof. Shad said, it is a, a reconciliation. I think it is a, a reprioritization uh, where now this must be put first and before all the other rights. And that requires us to reconsider everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also, as Prof. Shad said, you know, uh, based on what the uh, MPs that you spoke to said, you know, uh, now, you know, environmental campaigners, uh, you know, folks like, such as yourself can use the resolution as, I guess, ammunition in their battles against environmentally destructive policy instruments, right? And and development projects uh, in Malaysia and, you know, around the world as well. Yeah, certainly. And, in a, you know, Juliet is um, with this uh, universal recognition. It's not just for environmental campaigners. It is everyone and anyone at all mm. who have been campaigning for uh, a better world, essentially. Um, because so much of our misery stems from this uh, forgetfulness or this delusion that uh, activities can be conducted without considering their environmental impact, uh, whether in the short term or in the long term. So I, I think this is a powerful tool, or uh, I could think of it as a scaffolding yeah, it provides a, a very a strong scaffolding for us now to weave uh, the last mile, but uh, that's a long mile though, which is to weave it into our own context wherever we are. So it's not just for uh, environmental campaigners doing environmental uh, campaigning work, but it's for business leaders to now uh, better uh, in air quotes, negotiate with shareholders and investors about why their business operations need to be realigned and pivot towards uh, a kinder, a gentler uh, approach uh, to their uh, production and, in fact, to the way in which they encourage their customers to consume uh, in a way that is more holistic, in a way that makes sense uh, to the common future that we want. So businesses can take action uh, civil society can action can take action. Public servants can take action because they now can interpret and they can they can make use of what what freedom they have or what discretion they have in in their mandate in their power, and to uh, refer to this recognition uh, to uh, 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 change their decision making processes, uh, their uh, methods of um, doing public participation sharing information uh, with the, uh, the society and the citizenry uh, in making better decisions uh, when it comes to planning, development, natural resource management, and all these things. So it is profound, Julia. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, let's just go for a quick break, gentlemen. When we come back, let's talk about whether this is indeed a legally binding resolution. I'm speaking today to Q Yao. He's the secretary of the Chirah Anti-Haze Action Group. He's also the co-chair of the Malaysian Civil Society Organization Sustainable Development Goals Alliance and also Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, the holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya. We're talking about the UN General Assembly's adoption of a historic resolution, the recognition that it's a universal human right to live in a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Gillette Jacobs. Joining me today are Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Hajishat Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and Q Yao. He's the Secretary of the Chira Anti-Haze Action Group. He's also the Co-Chair of the Malaysian CSO-SDG Alliance. We're talking about the historic resolution, the recognition that it's a universal human right to live in a clean, healthy and sustainable environment that was uh, adopted by the, General, the UN General Assembly on the 28th of July. So uh, before the break, both gentlemen were, um, you know, kind of laying out what that means uh, for us. But I think uh, an important thing that we need to note is that the resolution is not legally binding on the 193 UN member states. And I can hear some people saying, you know, like, so what good is it then? You know, what good is a non-legally binding resolution? Uh, for you, JL, you know, why are you hopeful that it will still be a catalyst for change? I'm hopeful because, um, okay, the, although uh, what it actually means is a, a UN General Assembly uh, declaration like this, uh, it does not create uh, legal obligations on countries to comply with the declaration. However, there are many other factors that motivate action in the right direction. Uh, we do not only do things because we are legally compelled to do them. Uh, we, as human beings, we generally want to do things that give us meaning, uh, that elevate our uh, uh, well-being, uh, that that give us a dignity. And so I think um, this is a common thing that we want to align with. And so uh, this declaration, like I said, finally elevates the right to where it belongs. Uh, so in the sense, it, it helps us to click things together uh, from where there was this dysfunction, this disconnect between just blindly, say, uh, producing things, more things, and intensifying growth, but forgetting uh, why we want this, uh, we are chasing these wealth, uh, why we're chasing these numbers. So this this hopefully redirects these energy, redirects our uh, entrepreneurship uh, in uh, the right direction. And hopefully also, this is also a safeguard, although it is not legally binding, but it creates a safeguard for all in the sense that um, it reprioritizes our rights. And this recognition elevates the duty of care that governments and businesses bear mm. when making decisions and carrying out activities. So this high elevating of the duty of care is, is very, very important. It allows for um, uh, what Prof. Shad called the continuing reconciliation of interests. That means... Um, it allows for a, 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 us to a new benchmark to to do environmental justice, right? To a more fair, uh, more equitable uh, distribution of environmental benefits and environmental obligations. Okay, all right. And Prof, maybe I can ask you this, you know, just looking at Malaysia, what is our country's constitutional position on environmental rights? Thank you so much, Juliet. But uh, before I answer that, could I just go back to the question you posed to uh, Jia hmm. uh, about whether international law is law or not? Mm -hmm. uh, there are many perspectives of that. There is no clear answer. One attitude is that under Article 160, Clause 2 of the federal constitution, the term law has been defined to include written law, common law, and custom and international law has been left out therefore international law is not law and uh, international law is more like religion or morality um, that people 
may follow, may not follow, but it has no sanction behind it. Yeah. So that is one point of view. But I just want to uh, uh, mention to you that this is not necessarily the only point of view about what is law. There are legal philosophers like Ronald Dworkin who say law includes enacted law plus non-rule standards that a civilized, developed society grows up with. Now, in every society, uh, uh, whether ancient or modern, some standards of right and wrong, some standards of fairness and justice do develop. These non-rule standards, therefore, are part of the law. And I'm sure Jaya um, will agree with me. In much of the law of contract, in much of the law of tort, in family law, judges often rely on these non-rule standards. So coming back to your point, though it is not specifically mentioned in Article 160, Clause 2, that international law is law in Malaysia. Nevertheless, our courts can rely on international standards created by the General Assembly Resolution or created by other international laws on the simple constitutional assumption that when Parliament passes a law, it does not intend to violate our international obligations. Mm -hmm. As such, local laws will be interpreted harmoniously with international laws, even though those international laws may not have been incorporated into our legal system. Now coming to your uh, second part, I'll try to be brief here. Um, uh, sadly, our constitution born in 1957 significantly amended in 63 and many times afterwards, does not give constitutional recognition of environmental rights. It does not give constitutional recognition of what is something very close to my heart. I talk about the rights of future generations, not just your rights and mine, but the rights of our children and children's children to inherit an earth in which there are rivers and forests and hills like the way uh, you and I and our parents enjoyed. So our constitution is in that respect uh, uh, deficient. Mm -hmm. But that's not surprising. Most of the constitutions of the world born after World War II did not include environmental rights. But nevertheless, uh, uh, as I mentioned, the courts are not prevented from incorporating uh, into the law standards of uh, call them duty of care. For example, in negligence, uh, uh, in the law of negligence, the courts could well rely on uh, the duty of care um, not to disturb the environment, not to destroy the environment. As uh, if I sue you, uh, um, in my favor, the court could well rely on the duty of care uh, to the environment as part of your duty and uh, liability. Mm. So I think the constitution uh, was not uh, far reaching, was not visionary in this respect. But then that's not surprising. Uh, laws often react. They don't act. 
laws react to pressures. And I think that's our opportunity now that uh, we need to create pressures on MPs, on parliament, um, on the courts. And we need to educate our citizens, especially our children. Uh, we need to educate them that environmental responsibility is actually um, uh, not just a matter of uh, good morality. It's a question of survival. And do you think uh, this resolution, uh, can, which has now been uh, recognised, can be used to uh, prompt countries like Malaysia that does not expressly recognise environmental rights in its constitution uh, to enshrine the right to a healthy environment in our national constitutions? Of course, of course, uh, uh, it can. In fact, it has done so. Uh, Article 5, Clause 1 says, no person shall be deprived of his life or personal liberty, save in accordance with law. In the case of Tan Tek Seng, 1996, the learned judge said, the term life includes the right to a healthy environment. So I think the courts in Malaysia have taken that uh, beautiful step. And uh, uh, not only in the area of uh, the human right to life, uh, native land cases uh, are also incorporating the jurisprudence of conservation, uh, especially um, environmental responsibility and sustainable development. In the case of Adong, Kuwao, 1997, the courts were prepared to adopt the vocabulary and the thinking of environmental responsibility and sustainability. So I think whether it is the concept of life or the right to property for uh, natives, uh, I think the courts are moving in that direction. I know we are at the commencement of a journey mm -hmm. and by no means, by no means is uh, the destination in sight. But I think we have started the journey. Jayao, uh, anything you wanted to add to that? I mean, like just looking at a country like Malaysia, you know, we are an oil and, oil and gas producing country. You know, we may have some fears perhaps about the implications of recognising this right, right? You know, would it be possible... Is it more likely, I would say, that we will see opposition to supporting this resolution at a national level? I think we need to have more faith in ourselves and in our fellow Malaysians um, and uh, address the elephant in the room in the sense uh, recognizing first and foremost that the right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment is uh, non-negotiable, that it is the foundation for prosperity and for well-being and for dignity for all. And that's the future we want. And when we start on that basis and when we believe that we are big enough to encompass all of that while pursuing livelihoods, while pursuing economic well-being, then we can have meaningful conversations into what is our definition, what is our notion of sustainable development. Because until then, we will then just have delusional development. We will have dysfunctional development that is harming, that's going to harm all of us uh, because we already understand because the floods, they affect everyone. Polluted air, they, put, they affect everyone. A, a, a poisoned environment affects everyone. Uh, and they certainly will uh, be a terrible injustice to future generations. So for... The, when in confronting the triple crisis, the 
climate change, the climate crisis, our biodiversity crisis, and our pollution crisis, um, we really need to recognize and put in place this prioritization of, of, of what matters, what is close to our hearts, and understand that, and 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 discuss and uh, reconcile and negotiate among ourselves based on that basis. And so, as an oil and gas producing country, uh, we must indeed count our blessings to be uh, bestowed with these uh, heritage and these uh, commodity that has brought us so much wealth and will continue to do so. But we must embrace the future that we want and recognize that we are in order to move towards a decarbonized uh, future, a decarbonized economy, we need to come together and plot a fair, a just transition away from polluting uh, energy sources and, of course, away from polluting and unfair business practices. So, we, you know, as I mentioned, it takes all of us to come together because we're no longer where the government knows all and the government does all. I, I recall uh, the Sri uh, Dr. Nora Aslan from the Economic Action Council when launching the uh, recent policy uh, by the government, uh, resetting Malaysia, you know, recovering from the COVID and the economic crisis. Um, it is very clear uh, that it, it, is, it requires an all-of-society approach. And likewise, if we are to make sense um, and, and to reconcile our uh, how we do economics and uh, development yeah. um, with this. This is this is it's it's fundamental that we first of all I think recognize it in our constitution, or give uh, this human right uh, a place that is as uh, as high as we can, which is in the in the realm of uh, constitutional rights. We're, from there, we can then uh, have a sensible uh, discussion about how we should uh, plot our journey, as, as Prof said, towards prosperity uh, from where we are as an oil and gas producing country. Yeah, Juliet, I um, fully agree with you that there are some industries and some elites, political elites, economic elites, the deep state that actually have policies which are predatory. They survive, they prosper by creating environmental destruction. But I, I think there is no need for an to adopt it, there's no need to adopt an all or nothing attitude. I think we can begin gradually. I know the oil and gas industry, the housing industry, the plastic industry, that insecticide, pesticide industry, they basically uh, produce unhealthy products. Mm -hmm. Their activities are basically predatory. There's no doubt about that in my mind at least. Uh, nevertheless, I think there's a great deal that can be done. For example, the other day at parliament, issue was raised that people use cooking oil, then after they have used it, they dump it into the drain. So it ends up in the rivers and in the seas. People can be re-educated. Plastic bags, plastic bottles, how to do our fishing uh, rather than use dynamites, uh, so I think gradualism could well work. Ideally, we should wake up one morning and say we are now environmentally responsible. Um, I will not take my car. You will not take your car to work. You will travel by <laughs> bus. But I think we can 
commence these processes slowly, gradually. Uh, not too slowly, but nevertheless, uh, I, I'm hopeful that much can be achieved. Part of the challenge is re-education. Mm -hmm. And this re-education cannot come uh, with just a few Panadols, uh, you know, you take and you get re-educated. This has to be done slowly uh, over the decades. Okay, all right. Um, we just need to go for one more quick break, but when we come back, I want to find out uh, what both of you were doing uh, over in Parliament on Monday, you know, to gain support for the resolution from our MPs. Uh, I'm speaking today to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Hajishat Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, and also Q Jiayao, the Secretary of the Chirah Anti-Haze Action Group. He's also the co-chair of the CSO SDG Alliance. We're talking about the UN General Assembly's adoption of a historic resolution, the recognition that it's a universal human right to live in a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. We're breaking down what that means. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. With me on the line today are Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Hajishat Salim Faruqi, the holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, and Kiyu Jiayao. He's the Secretary of the Chera Anti-Haze Action Group. He's also the co-chair of the Malaysian Civil Society Organization's Sustainable Development Goals, or CSO SDG Alliance. We're talking about the UN General Assembly's adoption of the historic resolution, the recognition that it's a universal human right to live in a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. This was adopted just uh, just last week, you know, on the 28th of July. Uh, what does this mean? You know, what does the adoption of this resolution mean? So um, we were talking about that before the break. And now, you know, we were talking about how there are no, you know, it's not specifically listed in our constitution uh, that we have a right to a clean, healthy environment. So, Prof, you know, if that were, you know, if this were to spark change and we were to have a constitutional amendment to have that, what might the implications of that be? Well, um, it won't be unusual in my superficial knowledge, there are about 108 constitutions of the world that now recognize some aspects of environmental rights. And you know, there are some countries like Ecuador, Algeria, Sweden, Japan, Norway, Bolivia, that even recognize the rights of future generations specifically. So this is something that is uh, not totally uh, unusual. There are many constitutions. If our constitution were to do it, either by an amendment to the constitution or by passage of ordinary legislation. That itself actually would be a, a good beginning. Um, also, may I point out to you, there is an Article 92 in our constitution. And Article 92 actually has a tremendous potential, both positive and negative. And up to now, the positive potential has not been employed. Uh, under Article 92, the law is about National Development Plan, and it says that if after a recommendation from an expert committee and after consultation with the National Finance Council, the National Land Council, and the government of any state concern, the Yang Di Pertuanagong were to proclaim an area as a development area, the federal government can enter the area and hmm. adopt policies. Development doesn't only mean exploitation, it also means conservation. Hmm. But sadly, in the last 65 years, development has basically meant exploitation, cutting down the trees, <laughs> uh, decimating um, 
the forests and carrying away the hills. That's what it has meant. But actually, the definition clearly says in Article 92, Clause 3, the development includes um, conservation. So I think Article 92 can be employed by the government to tame the power of the states. At the moment, uh, the defect in our constitution is that land, uh, agriculture, forests, uh, mines, these are uh, primarily in state hands. Uh, federal government says, oh, we cannot do anything. I disagree with that. I think Article 92 gives them the power to declare an area to be a development area and development includes conservation. So I think it can be done. It has been done in many other countries. And if you allow me, I'll very quickly mention to you some of the fantastic developments uh, taking place in some countries. There is the concept of ecological sin ecological sin. There is this concept coming up in some countries. There is the concept of just savings principle. Then non-human entities are being recognized as having the power to go to the courts. So nature, nature, rivers are being recognized as having the power to go to the courts. In Ecuador, in New Zealand, in Uganda, actually the law is permitting not only human beings, uh, non-human entities through a board of trustees to go to the courts and they have locus standi. There are committees of intergenerational issues in Finland where every, depart uh, every development uh, project has to have a uh, scrutiny by a committee of intergeneration issues. There are environmental ombudsmen there's a future generation impact assessment report. So actually all these things are happening mm. and we can borrow a leaf from many of these countries. Uh, constitutional amendment will be a problem, um, Juliet, because it will require special procedures, consent perhaps of Majlis Raja Raja and of the governors of Sabah Sarawak. But an ordinary legislation, federal legislation will be a good beginning. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Prof. Uh, Jaya, anything you wanted to add to what Prof just said? Yeah, I think Prof has uh, pointed to so many possibilities um, and uh, from, from not just a constitutional amendment, but to, to the small steps that we can take uh, and the change that, that people can, 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 can effect. Uh, so I, I think we should be inspired um, um, by these possibilities and uh, work together and start uh, 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 moving towards uh, get, getting collecting these uh, pieces piece by piece uh, as part of the, the puzzle. So we, you know, Prof and I, we were in Parliament on Monday, uh, right. where we um, we've drawn up uh, quite quickly after the UN General Assembly declaration uh, a simple pledge, but a powerful one uh, for the members of Parliament to sign uh, to to declare their recognition. Um, of the fundamental right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment, as well as a, a pledge of their support for any legislation uh, in the future or for any amendment of the federal constitution. And so uh, I'm very happy to report that uh, of the uh, several MPs that we encountered in parliament that day, uh, all of them have signed the pledges. And we hope to um, uh, grow this uh, campaign 
into a, a, a greater size and to get all 222 MPs to to make this pledge, uh, essentially to uh, make this a thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and this recognition uh, among the lawmakers, uh, I think that would be one of these uh, humble steps that we can start. Mm -hmm. And already started, as you said, uh, you know, you dived right into it, you dove right into that. So really happy to hear that. Uh, and you're going to be continuing uh, to do more, I suppose, more of these on the ground sort of um, uh, interactions and meetings. Uh, what's, what's sort of the plans in the pipeline, I suppose? BFM, BFM has helped us to set ball, the ball rolling. <laughs> and I'm sure you'll be involved in the future too. Thank you. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Yes. So we have the uh, the pledge is actually up on the uh, campaign site of uh, Chirah Asia. So uh, look for the MPs pledge on the Chirah website, uh, and you can download the pledge as well and uh, send it to your MP and ask him or her to actually sign it. Um, you know. So yes, please uh, 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 get in touch and uh, let's let's explore how we can build this campaign. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, gentlemen, for joining me today. Uh, any last message you'd like to leave us with, uh, Prof? Uh, you know, any, any, I don't know, any other positive developments that arouse hope that you want to mention? Now, well, actually, um, from the point of view of constitutional law, there's a great deal that's going on in many other countries. And these are not just third world countries, actually countries like Sweden, um, uh, Norway, um, also, of course, Latin American countries, African countries. India is providing tremendous leadership in the area, for, for example, of public interest litigation. So if um, the forests are denuded and the people who live on the edges of the forest are deprived of their vegetation, of their fruits, of their firewood, of their water, actually on their behalf, um, civic-minded citizens or lawyers can go to the courts. And this is called public interest litigation. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, I forgot to mention this. Even in our country, there is a EIA, Environmental Impact Assessment Report. Uh, sadly, the way the report works is that it tends to favor the developer. Uh, uh, it tends to favor those who are going to decimate the hill rather than those who are going to be affected by it. I, I think um, in the future, the lawyers should challenge the provisions of the law because Article 8, equality before the law. The, the whole procedures of the EIA is that it is undemocratic. It tends to give weightage to the developers, to those who want to build rather than to those who want to object. Mm. So I, I think there is a great deal that can be done from the perspective of constitutional law. And I'll just end by saying that though it is now generally agreed that environmental rights and the right to sustainable development are basic human rights, nevertheless, uh, uh, we have to acknowledge that we are at the beginning of the journey. And uh, there's a great deal that needs to be done. But then, um, as the saying goes, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one small step. And I think that step has been taken. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. Yes. Uh, Jaya? I, I, yeah, I, I think uh, just flowing from what Prof Shah has said about um, the uh, public interest litigation and uh, lawyers taking action uh, where, for example, uh, environmental impact assessments are not done uh, properly, 
I think um, these kinds of um, activities, these kinds of challenges, uh, we need to embrace them and we need to yes. uh, look at them as a normal process uh, of reconciliating uh, our different interests. And it's absolutely natural uh, and normal and we should make that as efficient as possible so that we can constantly negotiate to find better and better I, uh, definition of what sustainable development means uh, in our own context. So this is uh, the, the key behind uh, sustainable development goal number 16, uh, which is about ensuring uh, achieving peace and justice and having strong institutions. And so uh, looking to, of course, our judiciary and our institutions uh, across civil service as well uh, to, to, to uh, strengthen and to empower themselves uh, uh, to play this uh, role in, in um, this negotiation. So I, I think the uh, UN General Assembly decision uh, really gives um, all of us great inspiration because it is, a, 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 it is universally recognized now. Um, it shows uh, this global solidarity among people. Um, and I think, and so um, in, you know, in our frustration and in our hopes, uh, we are not alone uh, and we should now um, accelerate our efforts. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you, uh, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and QGI Yao, Secretary of the Chera Anti-Haze Action Group and also the Co-Chair of the Malaysian Civil Society Organization Sustainable Development Goals Alliance. We were talking about the UN General Assembly's adoption of the historic resolution, the, rec the recognition that it's a universal human right to live in a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about Chera's work, you can just head to their website, as Jayao said. Just search for Cerah Malaysia, that's C-E-R-A-H-M-S-I-A dot Weebly dot com. Find out how you can get involved. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash earth, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.